I'm Steve Lascazzo, and this is The Way. You're listening to This is the Way podcast and the Star Wars and or Season 1, Episode 9 Reaction and Discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, This is the Way podcast has reached Episode 100. I wish I could tell you I have a star-studded extravaganza with lots of special guests planned. But just like it has been for quite some time now, it's just me, and today I'm just talking about Andor. The first episode came three years ago with the debut of Disney+. Plus. So the service, the show The Mandalorian, and this podcast all share the same birthday. Episode 100 unfortunately didn't work out to come on November 12th, which is our birthday, but it is pretty close. Other podcasts have reached the century mark in far less time. They've also probably got more listeners for an episode than we have over our entire run. There are a few of them out there. And then, (laughs) we've struggled to hit even just 50 subscribers. I think what's helped push me along, though, was once I added the monthly news updates... And that was out of a desire to keep the name of the podcast current. But once I got some consistency going, it, it, it became a little bit easier to, to grow and do other podcast things. Um, I had another podcast for a little while, Phase 4. And, you know, Phase 4 of Marvel is almost over now. There are a few people who thought that we stopped between Seasons 1 and 2 of The Mandalorian. It was a long gap. And we were the first ones to have This Is The Way podcast as our name. I jumped on it that night. The night that that came out, the episode three, we claimed that name. The funny thing is, I had called our podcast Catcher and Keeper because my friend Tim is a soccer goalie and I was a catcher. But it was never just Tim and I. The first day I showed up at his house, the first podcast episode uh, about the first episode of The Mandalorian, he brought his friend Andy. I, I think we had some fun with the podcast over the years, and I do want to thank Cufflinks.com for reaching out to me and offering help in those first two seasons of The Mandalorian because I really felt like we were doing some really good work. It was difficult having just one microphone between the three of us, but now, hey, we're here, number 100. Who knows how many I have left in me? I'll tell you, it is more fun with a co-host, but I'm not making money, and I can't afford it, and it's not what it's about for me. I'm just sharing my love of Star Wars. What's Star Wars? What? What is Star Wars? Star Wars is only the biggest thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. (laughs) All right, time for the usual reminder about these podcasts. Everything taking place on the show Andor, comes on the Star Wars timeline before the movie Rogue One. Should be obvious, but I gotta say it. So if you choose to listen to this podcast about this episode of Andor, episode 9, season 1, if you've not seen it yet, my podcast isn't spoiling you. You know what you're getting into, especially after this reminder. I will reference, if needed, Star Wars shows and movies 
that have already been released. So if you're not ready, come back later. If you are... Let's go! The episode is called Nobody's Listening, with an exclamation mark. So this title could come from so many places. First, of course, there's the actual dialogue from Cash and Andor, Nobody's Listening. If you think about it, it's the Empire itself, by extension the Senate when Mon Mothma speaks, herself, her family, Luthen and Clea not listening to Ferrix anymore, the guards not listening to the pleas of prisoners, the sign language being used between floors makes no sound, Kino Loy not listening to Keith Gergo, a.k.a. Cash and Andor, Melshi not listening to, well, anyone, Ironically, of course, Bix is forced to listen to screams of children, and the Empire, under Miro's watch, listened into Ferrix, interrogated witnesses, and is now surveilling Marva's place in anticipation of catching their thief and Axis. Nobody's listening seems like a pretty apt title, after all. You think anybody's listening? The writer for episode 9 is Bo Willimon, and this is his second of three. It does feel like a lead-up episode. I felt this one was much better than last week, but, well, I feel like they could have cut a ton of stuff from last week, and that this could have been part of that episode, so it could have been one long episode. More on that in a moment. Directing is once again Toby Haynes, his fifth episode overall, and five of six since he's going to do next week's episode with Willimon as well. His work's been solid. So has production design from Luke Hull. No new planets this week, at least not seen, though we did hear a few mentioned. But, as I mentioned with the writing, it felt like it was the good part of episode 8. The composer is Nicholas Bretel. His compilation of work from episodes 1 through 4 on the score and soundtrack is available on streaming services now, as Volume 1. Volume 2, containing his work on Episodes 5-8, through released Friday, November 4th. Volume 3, containing today's episode through the finale, will release on Friday, December 2nd, a week after Episode 12 comes out. The runtime for Episode 9 shows up as 50 minutes in parentheses on the Disney Plus show page. The action runs a little more than 41 minutes, from the start of the Andor title screen at the open until... It cuts to black from Kino Loy and Cashin in the prisoner shift change tunnel thing. The thumbnail description available on the show's Disney Plus episodes tab reads, Under intense scrutiny while imprisoned, Cashin makes allies plan an impossible escape. The description on the show's episode page in Disney Plus is more descriptive, reading, Under the unblinking scrutiny of the Empire within a high-security prison, Cashin must surreptitiously work to plan his escape. The Imperial Security Bureau keeps digging for answers on Ferrix. The scrutiny apparently doesn't include a lot of listening, unless it's specifically, in this case, for Andor, I guess. They are listening, just to the wrong people, and in the wrong places, and they're missing the big picture because of that. Another note about this episode 9. It officially brings us past all of the other Star Wars shows that have been released so far. No other show has had nine episodes. And there's going to be more. I wish this was a trend. I I wish we would see longer seasons. But 
I have a strong feeling that we're not going to. I think shows are opting for bigger budgets on fewer episodes. I've got no idea if that's related to the volume technology that, incidentally, is not being used for this show. So it's November, so I can say I'm truly thankful that we're going to get more episodes of this show than even House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones before we reach the finale. Episode 12 will be the last one, coming out the day before Thanksgiving. All right. Set the stage. Time to introduce the players. Both sets on. I'm spotted. The title character is Cashin Andor. Diego Luna plays him here and in Rogue One. Senator Mon Mothma is in both that movie and this show as well. Genevieve O'Reilly taking over the role for the prequels from the actress who played her in Return of the Jedi, Caroline Blackiston. Luthen Rail, played by Stellan Skarsgård, does not appear in Episode 9. But those three have been getting top billing. The rest of the cast is performing at a very high level as well. ISB supervisor Dedra Miro is played by Denise Gao, and Cyril Karn is played by Kyle Soller. Both Denise and Kyle are doing amazing work. But there is this strange, large section of people who are shipping them. That means they're rooting for them to be in a relationship. I got problems with that. First, go back and listen. We've been rooting for them to turn to the Rebellion all season long. No more. The events of this episode show us they've made their choice, and it's for the Empire. Kyle and Denise are doing really good work at portraying these people as... They're not heroic. They're not sympathetic. They're advocating evil. Now, I'm not sure what the intention is of Bo Willimon, the writer here, but my impression is Karn is dangerous and Miro even questions if he's stalking her. I wish I could say I was shocked about... I guess it's hypocrisy that some of the people rooting for them to get together have displayed on Twitter. You can't root for these people and then chastise others. I'm not going to fight people on this. Our turn has been 180, though. Now I'm rooting for force chokes from Vader and long falls from the heights of Coruscant all the way to the ground for both Dedra Miro and Cyril Karn. I'm telling you, I get a strong impression that those people that find it funny to root for them to find love would be absolutely apoplectic if this was a real-life incel making a move on a female government employee. Think about it. Adria Arjona's Bix Colleen is back again, and she shows us tortured. I cannot imagine the horror of that sound described by Dr. Gorst. But Arjona had to. So, please, let's all appreciate that performance. Faye Marseille is back as Velsartha, and while I was wrong about her being related to Luthen, she is related to someone. What a great surprise that was to see her and the interactions she had this episode. But if I was going to give an actor an award for the episode, like best actor of the episode. It's it's probably, no, it's gotta be Andy Serkis. Watching him in his character's disbelief and panic and then transforming the motivation mid-scene into resolve and anger, I'm still hoping he has a larger role so we could see more of him, but this, this was fantastic and it, and it's also a step in that direction he's probably going to be part of the breakout right we shall see
Arabella Fig from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is Catherine Hunter. E.D. Karn, Cyril's mom. It's through the mother that we get to see the brokenness of the son. Alastair Mackenzie as Mon Mothma's husband Perrin Firtha is turning in a very consistent performance the past several episodes. Now, I don't like his politics or his <laughs> lack of desire to even consider any. But there is part of me that is sympathetic to him in a way that we are most definitely not toward Dedra or Cyril at the moment. Anton Lesser is excellent as Major Partagaz. Ben Miles is solid as Tay Colma. And look, I spoke earlier of shipping. I wish people would stop theorizing about how Tay is actually laid his father and how Mon should leave parent for him. I do not understand how people root for dissolution of marriage between long-time married couples with children at that. Maybe they're just bored and expressing desires of their own hearts. Also, as you'll hear in the recap part, that's not what happened. They were not boyfriend and girlfriend. From Mon Mothma's mouth. But I digress. Duncan Powell is back again as Ruscott Melshi. This is the same character that's going to end up as a sergeant in the Rebellion, and he does die with, uh, well, everybody else on Scarif in Rogue One. Melshi, talk to me. Ready, ready, standing by. Now to the Order of Appearance cast, but I want to point out that I went and looked through the scenes, and the Order of Appearance doesn't always line up right in my estimation. Now, even if you suggest the actors are being credited in the background, it's still, I, I feel like there must have been some late edits made. Dr. Gorst is Joshua James. He does a great job. Call the Midwife, Black Mirror are both on his resume. Lieutenant Kesaks is Nick Moss, and he gets listed just for coming into the room where Bix is in the beginning. Again, I think the credits were created during storyboarding or something. Maybe changes were made during the edit, but just walking in, that gets you a credit? Next listed is Jem Bach, longtime BBC actor Brian Bovell. Ham, I still think it's short for Hamish, that is Clemens Schick. Zal is Joseph Davies, he was Private Stokes in the movie 1917, appeared in Chernobyl, Dumbo, The Crown, Call the Midwife. Olaf is given a heart-wrenching death by actor Christopher Fairbank, he was in Alien 3, Fifth Element, which is a personal favorite of mine, Guardians of the Galaxy, Pirates of the Caribbean 2 and 3, 2014's Hercules, tons of BBC TV including Doctor Who, He's probably most famous, though, for his role as Nick, the mugger on the rooftop at the beginning of Michael Keaton's 1989 Batman. Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! Don't kill me! Don't kill me, man! I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? Yeah, that's him delivering that line. I'm Batman. Burnock is Rasak Kukoyi, and he's the guy Andor is musing with about the guards not wearing insulated boots on the catwalk. He was listed last week, and I could not figure out who he was, but that was because he didn't have a speaking line or a prominent part. Not all the extras are always listed, so I had no idea. This is what leads me to believe, or this is one of the things that leads me to believe, that the episode was written as one long episode by Willimon, even though I, I, I don't think it was intended as one. I think it was always intended as two, but I think he let Toby Haynes decide how to cut it up, and I think some of the credits stayed in the episode eight even though shots ended up getting moved from 8 to 9 late in the edit process. Just a theory of mine. I think so, and so does Cassian. You know, it would also explain why we really didn't hear from guys listed as table numbers 
I listed a whole bunch of guys that were like table number seven guy. And then this episode, we hear from more guys in the transport tunnel between shifts. Like table two is Ben Fox. Table four is Fode Simbo. Taga from Cashin's table five is Tom Reed. Table three is Samson Cox Fennell. Must not have been Vimas. Unless he was, and that scene was moved from episode eight, or nine to eight. Table 1's Andy Gathergood appeared in The Last Kingdom. Table 7's Stephen Morphew, as I mentioned last week, was in a television series with Dennis Lawson, the actor who played Wedge Antilles in the first uh, Star Wars movie. There are some box guards and the Voice of God prison announcer listed. I'm not going to go through them again. You can listen to our past podcast to hear those. Captain Vanis Tigo is the one who wants to hang Salman Pak as an example. Chloris is back. The driver, for a moment, I thought his line to Mon Mothma about, you know, your cousin arriving, I thought that was maybe either a trap or an indication that he was on the rebellion side, but it was neither. Some night shift names are listed. My apologies to them, but listen, they were quick lines in the transfer tunnel. There's just not enough for me to care to list them right now. We very clearly find out who Zinska is. He was the night shift's Kino Loy. He was the table master for the night shift, played by Mensa Bidiaco. Lita is Bronte Carmichael. Supervisor Legret is Michael Jen. And Jung is Robert Ems. Korv was mentioned by name in this episode, played by Nuf Usalam. Attendant here, the bold assistant. He is Jacob James Beswick. He seems to be drawing inspiration from the woman that he's helping, Miro. Great job by Beswick. Listed last, Dr. Rasiv. And are you ready for this? No, I don't think you're ready. Everyone, Adrian Rollins, the prison doc, he played James Potter, Harry Potter's dad. He's been in tons of BBC programming, including basically he was a prison doctor on Doctor Who. He was in Slow Horses. And surprise, another Chernobyl actor. He plays Nikolai. Now, be honest, though. Did you recognize him, or would you have recognized his name even? Nobody here gives their real name. Press play and you get the Disney Plus Snap, a previously on segment, Lucasfilm Star Wars sequence, and then the Andor title sequence. Once again, Nicholas Bratel. New title theme, and it's great. And we pick up right where we left off with Bix Killeen on Ferrick's last episode. Miro starts her interrogation without torture. But if she's trying to appeal to Colleen, maybe likening her to a fish in a net, maybe that's not the best idea. She does pretty much admit that the Empire is lazy, though. She implies she's the only one making an effort. If Colleen was hoping to get tossed back into the water, she is mistaken. Miro is also pretty much giving away that not knowing an answer is only going to make her more suspicious and prolong the torture. So, if Colleen makes up stuff or gives up everyone, they're still going to believe that she's holding back. So what choice does she have? Miro basically proves she got whatever Pac was holding on to by telling everything to Bix. She doesn't know Luthen's name, but I don't think he does either. And we do discover how he got in contact with Pac, and then he latched on to Colleen. Miro knows that Bix has had face-to-face meetings with her Axis. You're in my net, Bix. 
Are you a fish or are you a thief? Hmm? Seems a shame to end up on the carving board if your motivation here is just money. She is actually enjoying this part of her job. Blevin just seemed to want to calm ways, but Miro, she wants to make them. Dedra tells Bix she wants everything. A list of parts, where they came from, where they went, who bought them. And when was the last time she saw Cashin? You're not going to believe me anyway, are you? No. I suppose not. From Ferrex, we go back to Narkina 5 and 5-2-D. Cashin has gotten into a weirdly productive groove, but we will see that it's just a cover. We hear Olaf has 41 shifts left on his sentence, but he looks ill. Last week he was falling a little bit behind with his memory, but also the physical demands seem to be getting to be too much. Cashin, meanwhile, is trying to keep the table producing, but he's certainly not wanting any credit for that. He doesn't want to make waves at all. He wants to be forgotten while he collects this data on how the prison system works. Olaf is going home. You man for them today? Always the next day, right? You know the drill. Back to Ferrex, Bix Colleen has been turned over to Dr. Gorse. There's a Nazi concentration camp experiment vibe that I get from him. It really kind of made the entire scene unsettling and upsetting. So great job on the casting there. And the acting, of course. We hear Gorse tell the tale of Dizon Frey, an outer rim moon where a massacre took place. So the Empire wanted to build this refueling center on the moon, but the Dizonites resisted, and then they were slaughtered. That's bad, right? What could be worse? The massacre of the Dizonites was broadcast and recorded as proof of mission. They make a sound as they die, a sort of choral, agonized pleading. It's quite unlike anything anyone had ever heard before. There were three communications officers monitoring the documentation, and they were found, hours later, huddled together in, in various states of emotional distress in a cruel space beneath the ship's bridge. Oh, that's terrible. Surely it can't get any worse than that. We've taken the recordings and modified them slightly, layering, uh, adjusting, and we've found a section of what we believe are primarily children, which has its own particular effect. I mean, the delivery of those lines by actor Joshua James is accompanied by several smirks and smiles in what is a gleeful tone of voice, too. Nero comes back just in time for the fun. I, I think the choice to have it go silent, except for Bix's breath and then the scream after they put the headphones on, that I thought that was a great choice. And I also liked how the scream sound led into the drill in the prison. I thought that was very effective, too. I have in my notes that the cut from Bix in the room being tortured is almost an identical shot to one in A New Hope, where Leia is with Vader and the floating torture droid on the detention level, and then the door closes, the camera swoops down to a passing guard's feet... I thought this was going to be a great Easter egg that I found, but it seems like everyone noticed that. I guess that's what happens when 
you watch the original trilogy like 300 times or so in your life. So, uh, congratulations. Everybody saw the same thing. <laughs> On Narkina 5, we see that prisoners are allowed bathroom breaks. Because, you know, the Empire doesn't care as long as you're producing for them. When he takes the metal covering off of the wall, I was wondering, so who discovered this? And then, what was that person trying to accomplish? And did that person leave the knife? And then, what is Cashin doing here? Is he intending to make a break for it as soon as he cuts through this pipe? It would seem to me that as soon as he cuts through it, as soon as it starts leaking, you're going to have to act immediately. You're not going to get to plan when you do it. The voice of God interrupts his plans, and he puts things back together and rushes out to get on program. And I guess the man he's talking with is Burnock. They're well into planning it, and it seems that way because Cashing even mentions a new plan to attack while the guard is halfway down. The issue I see for them is, okay, the catwalk might not be electrified. But the floor sure as heck is, right? I mean, so two guys get out and the rest fry? Maybe that's what part of cutting the pipe is for? Maybe they're disabling something? But it sounded like disabling the lift is also part of the plan, so Cashin's strategizing here. But he got one look on the way into the control room for this unit. It is going to be fun watching the breakout, because there will be what they've planned for, and then they're going to have to just wing part of it, right? They were on program to bring in a new fish caught in the Empire's net. So this new guy gets the same spiel as Cashin did from Kinoloy when he arrived. Take one guard, one weapon. This is Unit 52D, Level 5, Room 2. The D is for day shift. Back to Ferrex, Bix is suffering from the torture. Dedra grabs her face and poses the same question she asked before she admitted it didn't matter what answer was given. When did you last see Cashin Andor? What good is that supposed to do? I'm sure we'll see how important that information actually is. I'm wondering if they're trying to set up that Andor's identity as Keith Gergo is going to be discovered just as the prison break is happening. I really hope not, though, because that would be way too convenient, and it would it kind of would lower my opinion of the writing. Actually, it would lower it considerably. One of the great things I think this show has been doing is everything is believable. The interactions, at least, have been very believable for a sci-fi fantasy. I know, none of it's real, but the human interactions are very believable. What? What's on now? just talked about this. He told you two minutes ago. In the prison factory, Olaf is starting to crack. He's older, weaker, definitely Table 5's weak link for some time now, but they don't have a choice. As a team, they're trying to help him, but he's slipping. On Ferrex, Dedra Miro is finished with the interrogation of Bix, but good news for Colleen, she's being kept alive for now. Not the same for Salman Pak, unfortunately. She's a witness. She's the only one we've got who can identify Axis. And Salman Pak? I don't care. I'd like to hang him. What's left of him, anyway. Make sure they know who's in charge. As you wish. That phrase, as you wish, means something much different to fans of the Princess Bride, doesn't it? 
We head from Ferrex to Coruscant and the Senate chamber where Mon Mothma is speaking against the P.O.R.D. legislation. She's not completely alone in her opposition. There are voices we hear in the background. Some say let her speak and she's right. But just as many are booing or saying long live the Empire. No one yet is suggesting she's a traitor. But frankly, I'm shocked the Empire hasn't just manufactured a reason to silence her. Well, maybe they're in the process. The title of the episode again is Nobody's Listening? Mon Mothma might be speaking openly without anyone listening, but surely they are watching her closely. Is there a more important issue facing this body right now than Imperial Overreach? The Public Order Resentencing Directive is the next step on an all-too-predictable march toward complete, unchallenged authority. Many senators shut off their lights. I guess that indicates they're not in support or just don't want to hear her anymore. She's going to end up leaving dejected and then gets news from her driver, Chloris, who might also be spying on her, that her cousin is waiting for her. Cousin? I can't be the only one who just started thinking, whoa, what? How, how, who can this be? Is it going to be somebody new? Is it going to be a code word? Is someone paying her a secret visit? Maybe it's even Marva. Or someone that Mon thought was long gone. Or somebody in the rebellion that we will, you know, eventually get to know. She says, she's there now. Chloris doesn't seem overly suspicious, but this was exciting news to get for us. And because we know the person has been on Coruscant from an earlier episode, it didn't cross my mind that it could have been who it was. They could keep us here forever if they wanted. That's enough from you, Melshi. Back in the prison, Melshi hits the nail on the head. Something is wrong. All prisoners are being held between shifts in the transfer tunnels. The sign language between floors is making communication difficult. But something's very wrong on level two. Kino Loy wants his 49 men to toe the line. He's just trying to maintain the status quo. He believes you work hard, you do your time, you'll be released. Well, the power goes out. It's almost like there was this surge of power somewhere else in the building. I I think this is the moment that Level 2 got fried. You haven't got a clue what they are saying. Level 2, far side, Level 2. Are you all scrambled or something? It takes a week for one word to get all the way up here and you're panicking about something that's happening on the other side of the building. How many hands does it take for one word to get through up here? It's a long way, Kino, yes, but you've got to... Stand in place, on program, feet down, face front, hands on heads. We will have immediate facility compliance or we will begin activating floors without warning. Andy Circus performs so well that I felt like I understood his character's panic. The, the same one that he's admonishing the entire day shift for having. There might not be audio feeds from the tunnels... But I sure do know why they'd have video. I mean, they have to, right? Because they say, get on program, and then when you comply, we'll open the doors. The guards can tell which groups are on program. So if you have video, why don't you also have audio? Even if you don't want to listen, nobody's listening. Even if you don't want to, why wouldn't you just have it. Oh, Bell's been to Tassia Moon. Look what she brought me. Your father may have an opinion. We'll see if he lets you wear it. He lets me do anything I want. Well, why don't you go try it on? Lita shows sass to her mother, but people who are saying this makes Perrin even worse, that, well, you just don't have kids then. 
One day, mom's the favorite. Next day, dad's the favorite. So it sounds like Lita is, you know, she's daddy's girl right now. And that happens in real life. It's not the cause of problems in this marriage. It's a symptom. And honestly, Mon's vow that she and Vel speak of while Lita is trying on clothes, that's kind of what is contributing to this problem. Mon Mothma is being secretive. Now, we know she has to. She doesn't have much of a choice. But maybe she never trusted her husband, at the even in the beginning. We don't know about that beginning. We don't know about when this vow was made. So we don't know if she made some effort. Or maybe she didn't make any. Maybe she felt, even early on, that he would not be receptive. She's sacrificing her family life for a cause that she believes in. And I'm not even judging her for that. I just don't think it's cut and dry that she can be... I don't think you can just be secretive and then not raise questions in your own marriage. We know why she's doing it. But very clearly, Lita and Perrin don't. Val even mentions, as dangerous as her life has been, Mon, by virtue of her status and where she is... You're one to worry about. Trapped here, boxed in. Please tell me you're being careful. Things are happening. There's risk. There's no other way. On Narkina 5, Cashin is in a new bunk closer to Melshi and across from Kino, so I guess he's swapped. Maybe he's trying to recruit the floor master to his side. Kino still thinks, keep your nose clean, so to speak you'll fare better than entertaining these dreams of escape. Cashin just wants information. You know, how many guards per level? How many people do they have to worry about when they're planning this? Here's the sad realization I'm having about this prison break. Anyone who doesn't make it out is getting vaporized by the Empire. There is no way they're letting any prisoners live. All the floors that don't escape, you are dead. The Empire is already committed to that with their actions. They're not going to let anybody investigate and find out that people have been held well after. This is, That's just not going to fly. But Kino isn't sure of that. At this point, he's not seen enough evidence to trust anyone but himself. Just like the senators in the Senate chamber, Kino shuts off his light to his bed chamber and tells Cashin, I'm not listening. Melchie's right. We're cheaper than droids and easier to replace. Good luck to you. You think they care what we say? Nobody's listening. Nobody. How many guards on each level? We check in on the ISB headquarters, and Miro is making her case again to a much more receptive room. In fact, I didn't see Blevin in the conference room anymore. The Senate and the ISB meeting places are both large and round. They kind of look a little Epcot-y to me. And the supervisor assistants, they're sitting on benches along the wall. I thought it was interesting how much Partagas has changed since the events on Aldani. He's listening quite a bit more to everyone in the room. He's not as sassy to them. There's even this boldness of Miro's assistant to interject that is rewarded with praise. I'm wondering how much pressure Partagas is actually getting from Yularen now. I also wonder... Does ISB headquarters move onto the Death Star once it's completed? Uh, just, just, just a thought of mine. Axis obviously runs a very disciplined operation and one that's large enough to not be reliant on any one network or supplier. Kaline gave us a list of every piece of gear that came through Ferrix, and we think we've already got a match to a targeting unit recovered from a safe house operated by a rebel cell associated with Maya Pei. 
The events of this particular meeting have to do with what Miro got from Bix Colleen. Pretty much everything, it turns out. It's also where I get my answer to the question that I posed in an earlier podcast about why wouldn't they just bring down the thunder on Marva? You didn't question the mother? I decided to wait. Better now leaving her in place and standing back. She's too old and frail for anything serious, and if nothing else, she's our bait. She's the reason Andor came back. Perhaps they communicate. If they are, we'll know. We're on her full time. Asked and answered, and honestly, that to me is great writing. I'm so used to having these big questions just dismissed, and I don't think I needed to be patient based on those kinds of questions being unaddressed in previous shows I've watched, like The Book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan Kenobi. The show also doesn't make us wait long to find out what happened to Level 2. Back in the transfer tunnel again, prisoners are now spreading word that the entire floor, two full shifts and 98 men on the floor, and the floor masters, 100 guys, including you know the, the floor masters like Kino and Ziska, they all got fried. Brutal. Well, Ulof doesn't seem to hear, so Melshi gives him the truth as he sees it, saying, hey, they were all set free. Well, death is as much freedom as the Empire is offering. That doesn't sit well with Kino, so he punches Melshi and he's angry. But that's the last thing you want to do when the voice is telling you, get on program. Cashin points out, hey, the best way to handle this, act like we don't know. If the guards think that the prisoners know what's up, well, they're just going to eliminate the threat of information leaks. Kino's worldview is starting to get challenged by some strong evidence. Maybe things are not as simple as he thought. Hold your program! Tighten up and listen! It's a rumor! Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. We have heard nothing. Just another day, another shift. So let's keep our mouths shut, keep our heads down, until we know what's going on. Cyril Karn is in his Coruscant home with his mother, and she's kind of tired of him being more like a tenant than a son, and she doesn't feel he values her. She doesn't truly value him, though, unless it reflects well on her. Or at least that's the impression I get. She was snooping on him looking through his private things, but she didn't know that he had been promoted. I mean, well, neither did we. This is how we find out. I knew they'd recognize your promise. The demands of my time will be increased. Uncle Harlow will be so pleased. Hey, you know, there's no way we don't find out who Harlow is now, right? I mean, oh, and I like how when Eni pours out the cereal, there's that one piece that doesn't make the bowl. You think that that's like a mistake. But then we get the shot of him picking it up and throwing it back in the bowl. So the one that got away gets tossed back in with the others. Our next scene shows us this happening in the prison, kind of. Andor, the one who got tossed in with the others, he was just walking to the store. But he was the bit of cereal that kind of was getting away. Nope, back in the bowl, right? The prison is a short scene. Just shows us the continued decline of Olaf. It's very sad. We know what's coming. His table, though, table five, treating him like a brother. Never scolding him or yelling at him. Maybe not like a brother then. They're, they're, they're just encouraging him and trying to help him keep up. Then we cut to Coruscant and Mon's home where Perrin is hassling Vel over breakfast. 
She's only in town for one night, then going on a pilgrimage. I don't know what that is. Back to Chandrilla. I mean, it could be anything. It could be an actual pilgrimage, or it could just be she's making a joke. He needles her for being single at her age, since he and Mon got married young, as is the custom. Mon hides a bemused look when Vel says, you know, all the good ones are taken. I I think that's a pretty... I mean, if Perrin saw her laughing at that, I think he would be a little bit more upset at everything that's going on, but he's not paying attention. Then the mention of Tay Coma. I feel like I have to point out to all these shippers putting Mon and Tay together, they were just grade school classmates and friends. Men and women can just be friends. It doesn't have to always be romantic. To Lita and Perrin, the closest might as well be because it's Leda or Lita that calls him an old boyfriend of her mother's, which explains her attitude toward him and her mother, but that's because her father told her that. Perrin says at least Fell's not gone political. <laughs> you know, that's boring to him, remember? Well, if you need more proof, though, that Mon and Tay didn't date, here's a private exchange between the two cousins. Tay Colma. Money. Is that all it is? I don't have enough to worry about. Anything I can do? Yes. Be a spoiled rich girl for a while. Remind people that's who you are. I'll try. That should sell it, right? Well, Mon is giving Vel advice on how to maintain her cover. At this point, we know Mon is doing a terrific job on herself, but she is not immune to pressure. What have we done, Vel? We've chosen a side. We're fighting against the dark. We're making something of our lives. There's a quick scene on Ferrix of Bix Kaleen in her holding cell, and I'm wondering if Pac gets hung, would there be a riot? Would she get broken out? I think she's part of season two. So wouldn't it be great to see Marva in action again, breaking her out with B2 EMO, and they fly off to somewhere safe? There's no dialogue, just Bix with a raspy breath, and then we go back to the exterior of the ISB. Cyril Karn has been waiting for Dedra Miro. This is not bad. He is not stalking her simply by waiting in the one place he knows where she, where he can find her. It goes bad when you don't accept no as an answer. We find out that this case is stalking. Well, because he admits it. Are you stalking me? I know you work here, and I come sometimes to see if I'll see you. I thought I had ruined my life. I thought I was done. After meeting you and discovering you understood how dangerous Cassie Nandor was, and just being in your presence, I... I realized that life was worth living. I realized that if nothing else, there was justice and beauty in the galaxy, and if I just kept going... Perhaps my deranged belief that there was something better fated for me in the future was a dream worth clinging to. I could have you arrested. You're aware of that. I want what you want. I sense it. I know it. You're out of your mind. So you wait one time to meet her and thank her. That's that's okay. What else could he could he do? He 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 knew that's where she was. He's been coming to see her several times. And okay, maybe you're working up the courage. You know, maybe that'll allow you more than one visit, and then you finally get up the courage to go and talk to her. But he grabs her when she tries to leave as he's 
basically professing his love for her through praising her for something she says she didn't do. He thinks, oh, this woman appreciates me. She's paying attention to me. She's helping me out. She's telling him, it's all in your head. And he even suggests his belief might have been deranged. I have already given you a second chance. You come near me again, you pursue any of this, and I swear I'll have you in a cage on the outer rim. Deranged is a strong word. The scene itself isn't problematic. It's fiction. It's showing us his character who exhibits problematic behavior. But there are actually people on Twitter cheering for them to get together after this and suggesting that Miro should swoon over this romantic gesture from Karn? Gross. There you are. Just came in. They picked up a rebel pilot an hour ago. From our target list? No, random, but he's using a stolen Imperial masking unit. One of ours? Well, Corv is checking, but... Where are they holding him? A destroyer off Steergard. Get Dr. Gorst. Send him out there immediately. I already did. He's on his way. Do you want to go? Yes. No, there's no time. I'll interrogate remotely. Good work. Go. And there, that's the whole next scene I just played. Mira went inside. Her assistant does an amazing job. She actually seems like she appreciates him. And then the next scene after that is Tay and Mon discussing finances. She needs 400,000 credits in a hurry before the Empire audits her. Tay is trying to hide her withdrawals, but his idea is... Well, it's risky. We need a Chandrillan banker with treasury relationships and a book of business that's incomprehensibly huge. You have someone in mind. It's not a long list. And yet you're afraid to say who it is. Davos Calden. Now, if he had said Jabba, we'd know who that is, right? The name Davos Golden means nothing to us, except Mon thinks he's a thug and he's really wealthy. He also wants to meet with her. Now, that could be anybody. I, I, IMDB hasn't been any help. Searches on the internet basically bring up, we don't know who he is. This could mean it's a big-name actor or just someone getting introduced now that's going to factor in bigger later, maybe in Season 2. There are three episodes left, so it could certainly be a quick intro and then done. We also might never see Davo visit her. I could keep looking. The Empire is still on the hunt for rebel cells, and a gift has dropped in their lap. A pilot was captured, and they think it's one of Anto Krieger's men. But I thought we heard from Luthen that Krieger was looking specifically for air support from Saw. So was this Saw's pilot? Or did he get a pilot from somewhere else? Is this one of the things that's going to make Saw Guerrera more suspicious and more crazy? The Empire doesn't quite know how to handle this pilot situation. They don't want the Rebels to call off the attack. They don't want them to get suspicious. They just want to be ready when they do to crush them. How do you accomplish that? Well, Miro has an answer. Destroy the ship. Make it look like an accident. There's too much at stake. If I were Krieger, I'd be suspicious. We want Krieger moving forward. What if we foul the ship? An accident, something mechanical. Have the pilot found dead in the cockpit. What would happen? They'd have to find it, but... They'd tow it into Kafreen. If we did it quickly, staged it properly, let it drift into traffic. Make it so top priority quickly and carefully we leave no trace. Excellent work. I want a meeting with military intelligence immediately about Spellhouse. Let's go. It's a good plan and it just might work. What that means for the people involved, we don't know. But we know that Saw and Tutus make it all the way to Rogue One. And this pilot was tortured by Gorst and now is going to suffer and die. 
Speaking of which, on Narkina 5, the shift is about to end and Olaf is suffering. Table 5 isn't the low producer, but Olaf can hardly stand and then falls back into Zal during the on-program section. They manage to stay, I don't know, inconspicuous enough to make it to the transfer tunnel. Olaf isn't going to make it through. Hang in there, Olaf. You've only got a few shifts left. Kino asks Zinska to alert the guards, we need a medtech. As it so happens, the medtech is also a prisoner, one that Kino has seen before during his time. The tech says he's also seen Olaf before, but doesn't want to know his name because, well, think about it, it's probably too stressful for him to live with what he knows, and learning the names of these people is only going to make it tougher. He's got 40 shifts left, so we just want something to get him through the next few days. Getting back on his feet. That's another option. What? You can't save him. Nothing to save. He's had a massive stroke. 40 shifts. Well, that's what everyone thinks. That's what Kino has been banking on. He wants to believe there's an end. As the doctor points out, there's only one end, and at least Olaf can go peacefully. The rest of them might not be so lucky. I made a mistake. A man who was just released on four ended up back on two the next day. Work got out on the floor and then they killed them all. You need those other men there? They're just leaving. Now. If he was released, you heard me. No one's getting out, are they? Not now. Not after this. At least your friend is free. You two, on program now. This hits Cashin and Kino like a ton of bricks. What's left for them? Well, for Kino, this was the last straw. Let's go, come on, let's go. Now. Let's go. How many guards on each level? Never more than 12. Alright, so what do you think of the episode? Let me know. I am very glad to see so many of my issues with last week answered, like, why wasn't the Empire interrogating Marva? That's the kind of mistake that I expect the Empire to make. I said last week that I thought there wasn't enough about Vimas to make me care about his death, and this week they invested us in Olaf, and we got a payoff. Now that doesn't change that last week we spent too much time in places, I think. The Velen Sinta stuff could have been dropped. Should have been dropped. This week's stuff was better. The prison buildup could have been whittled down better. Could have been replaced with some of the great stuff inside this week's prison goings-on. The Mon Mothma Take Colma stuff could have likewise been condensed. We basically got repetition when cutting out the middle would have helped with the pace. And the Cyril and Dedra stuff? That needs to go. I hope they nip that in the bud. He's not romantic. He's a stalker. I don't need a lesson in that. I already know what I'm seeing. But let me make this clear. I like this show a lot. I love it. Those suggestions that I'm making, they don't necessarily make the show better for me. I want more episodes, not less. I feel like fans are loving this show, but you know, there's some news outlets calling this show a failure in comparison to other shows, so maybe for those weirdos, it could be tightened up. But not for me, though. Give me more. I'm just saying, narratively, story-wise, 
those are some of the things that I might do to tighten things up. This is the message I was sent. Okay, it's episode 100 and we've got some mail. Daniel from Star Wars Now This wrote in with some great thoughts and he has three points. And the email was sent after I recorded my show for episode 8 but before I released it. I'm going to answer one of his questions this week, one next week, and another after week 11, unless I get more mail next week, and then I'll respond to all of his remaining thoughts in one one shot. They're good thoughts, and I don't want to just rush through them, but I also want more engagement, so stretching this one email out is going to be helpful to me. The transmission we received. What is it they've sent us? Daniel has points about Luthen. A possibly forgotten plotline. And then the question I have here. He writes, If K2SO is introduced in this show, do you think they will or should stick to his origin story from the Cashin and K2SO comic one-shot? I'm K2SO. I'm a reprogrammed Imperial droid. Daniel, I hope they don't. The special Star Wars Rogue One Cashin and K2SO special 2017 number one features Rebel Spies Curtis and Rismore, along with the meeting and quick reprogramming of K2SO. I don't know why Disney wants to make most of their stuff canon, but I don't think even Disney realized how complicated it is to allow people to write what's basically fan fiction when it could tie into other projects. This is too big of a detail to leave to a comic. Do I think they will introduce K2SO in Season 1? Well, I was hoping we would see him at least deactivated. I'm hoping we see it happen on screen. I I hope we don't get to Season 2 and then all of a sudden he's there. If you remember in The Mandalorian, we got a flashback in Season 1 for the reprogramming of IG-11 by Queel. So, I, I don't know that we need to see the whole process on screen... But seeing the meaning and the aftermath is a significant part of Cashin's journey. Now, should Disney do this? No. I don't think Disney should hold themselves to something like this, and it's probably a good time for a reminder about the levels of canon. Let's go! At the top are the saga films. New Hope, uh, Return of the Jedi, every one of them. Even the really bad one. (laughs) If it happens in a saga film, it is stone-cold canon. If it happens in a spin-off film like Rogue One or Solo or even the Clone Wars animated film, that's on the next rung down. Still very much canon. If anything doesn't match up with the saga films, the Skywalker saga wins out. Next comes live-action television. Not all television, but live-action. If we see it in live action, it takes precedence over anything below it. Next, perhaps surprisingly, is animated television. Shows like The Clone Wars, Rebels, Tales of the Jedi, even Resistance. Those are next. Then, animated shorts like Forces of Destiny. If you see something there and it contradicts something above it, it's not canon. Well, next is comic books, right? No. Video games are next. All visual media comes before anything else. So video games like Fallen Order or the scenes in Battlefront 2, they come next no matter what authors say. Novelizations of the films come next. By that I mean if something in a novelization of The Rise of Skywalker contradicts the movie, the movie wins. TV shows beat it. 
Yes, even the cartoons will beat it. Next, visual dictionaries. The stuff inside there is much more curated than anything handled by outside writers. Then there's the fan fiction. (laughs) I'm sorry. The novels, including the young adult ones. I happen to like Lost Stars. It's very low on the canon list. It's still canon, but it's very low on the list. The Thrawn novels, Ahsoka novel, novels about Batu or Leia's life as a teenager, all of that is very far down the list. But it's not last. Now, you'd think visual comes first, right? But comic books beat only a very small amount of things. Comic books beat Galaxy's Edge, Galactic Star Cruiser, or animated shorts on the web, and action figure backstories. I I think it would be impossible to tell good stories and also produce all that content and then have it all dovetail nicely together. It's just, that's an impossible ask. In those cases, and especially in the case of K2SO, I would rather them tell a story that makes sense, brings the characters into the story, and I'd rather them do that 10 out of 10 times than adhere to a comic book. Now, if this was the other way around, and the writer was asked after the fact, I'd of course point to the fact that something higher up the canon ladder requires the writer to write according to pre-established lore. So, live action is like watching video evidence. Animation is a visual representation. The written word is the same as a written account. Now, that is not from Disney. That's how I look at it. Yeah? Good. Don't forget, it wasn't a book first. It was a movie first. Movies win. Movies are at the top, tippity-top. Live action, very high up there. Okay, next week will be the final entry from Willemont and Haynes, episode 10. Tony Gilroy is listed as the writer for the penultimate and finale episodes. Benjamin Karen is back to direct. Okay, please send feedback or episode 100 congratulations, hint, hint, via email to thisisthewaypodcast at gmail.com. You could also send messages through social media. You can find This Is The Way Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at This Is The Way Pod or on Facebook.com slash This Is The Way Pod. Our Linktree site has all relevant links at L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash This Is The Way Pod. Please consider subscribing and please leave me a positive review on whatever podcast distributor you use. Thank you for joining me today for Nobody's Listening, the ninth episode of the first season of Andor, and this is The Way Podcast's 100th episode. I'm your host, Steve Lascalzo, and this is The Way. May the Force be with you, always. Always.